Okay, take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible or are not familiar with the Bible yet, it's found on page 1214 right in the Pew Bible. So you can look for that as others turn there. focus our attention on, I'm going to read from verse 12, chapter 4, to verse number 19. And it says this, Beloved, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ... Keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed but is to glorify God in his name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if, we, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we look at your word, we want to be ready to receive it, Lord. We want to pay attention to it. We want the word of God to challenge our hearts, to expose us if need be, and to put us in a place where we know where we stand before you, And we know what we ought to do if suffering comes our way. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would enable us and strengthen us to follow the command in the last verse to be able to give ourselves and trust ourselves to a God who is faithful and always will be faithful and can only be faithful. Thank you, Lord, for that. Encourage us and challenge us and teach us from your word this morning. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. So keep in mind as we continue in this passage that for the believer, suffering is part of the Christian's lot. In fact, we're going to look at today special reasons for end time suffering because Christians are strangers and sojourners in an alien world where Satan is the God and prince. Anything, anything a Christian does to glorify glorify God will be at some time met by an attack of the enemy. Of course, for some Christians, suffering will be it will be to a lesser degree, and for others it will be to a greater degree. As the Gospel of John reminds us, these things I have spoken to you so that in that you may have peace. And then it says, in the world you will have tribulation. Be of courage. I have overcome the world. And of course, right here in First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse number 12, It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. So these fiery trials come because we are faithful to God and we want to do what is right and to live a life that's pleasing to him. Now the reasons Christians can be of good cheer and rejoice in suffering really are twofold, that suffering actually means fellowship with Christ 
Because when the hatred that came against Christ comes against us, we are actually fellowshipping with Christ. And then when the rejection that came against Christ comes against us, we are also entering into, uh, as a human being, what Christ went through when he was rejected. So remember, if we suffer for Christ, it is not a penalty. It is not that God's against us. I mentioned that last week. But it is a privilege. So then the proper attitude to suffering will resort actually in greater rejoicing. Verse number 13 of chapter 4, keep on rejoicing. So that at the revelation of his glory, you will rejoice with exaltation. So in other words, present joy comes from following Christ, and future joy at the great day when it really counts. At the end of the, the, end of the world, is, is we know from Scripture, is coming. The purpose of rejoicing in the midst of trials is because the Lord is coming again. The glory of Christ will be shared with believers when Christ's full glory is unveiled. We've never seen Christ in his full glory yet, but we will. When all the glory of the deity of Christ shall shine forth in his human nature before the whole universe of angels and peoples, and we're going to be there with him, and that glory is going to be reflected off of us And that's going to be a time of rejoicing and exaltation. So think for a moment. Think for a moment on this, Christian. If suffering and persecution has come upon the believer to test the genuineness and maturity of their faith and of your faith, it also points to something more significant. And what is it? Well, we have reached a a critical point in time a time in which judgment ha- the judgment of God has begun, a judgment once started that cannot be stopped, a judgment that has a beginning and has an end to it. And I'm referring to the end-time judgment of God or the eschatological judgment of God. The Apostle Peter has been pointing this out throughout his whole message of Peter, right up until chapter 4. And if you look... At verse 7 of chapter 4, it says this, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So in thinking of that, you and I are in a time in which God's judgment is definitely from the cross until now, until the end, will be experienced by not only the church, but also the ungodly, those who reject the gospel. So this morning, the design of the end-time suffering has really a couple of special reasons connected to it, and I want to look at those today, special reasons. And the first reason for this suffering is this, that suffering is designed to cleanse The church. Notice in verse number 17 of chapter 4, it's to cleanse the church. And so that means that judgment first has a refining purpose to it. Notice in verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. See, that's where God's judgment begins. And it is the word judgment here in Scripture. Judgment begins with the household of God, and it moves outward and forward. The purpose for this judgment is to cleanse and to refine the church. Now, why? Well, because apostasy and complacency and hypocrisy, along with distortions of Scripture, false gospels, find their way into the church and in some cases have made their home in the church. So there is need for the church to be cleansed, to be cleaned out of these things in preparation for the coming of the Lord. 
Now, believers are called to examine and judge themselves. In fact, at every Lord's table, we're called to judge ourselves, to examine ourselves, to look at how we're doing spiritually, to confess our sin, to see how our relationships are growing in maturity to Christ, right? And if once we do that, then we are to make adjustments. And if we don't make those adjustments, the church body ought to make those adjustments. But if not, God would use persecution as a means to winnowing out the chaff, the bad stuff. It has to be cleaned out. Now, keep in mind, the judgment experienced by Christians is not punishment for sin, even though there may be sins that need to get cleaned out, but necessary purifying and cleansing of the household of God, God's real people. Now, I want you to see in verse number 17, this word household. Now, the question would be, who are the household of God? That's a good question. Well, take your Bibles real quick and turn uh, back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, because this passage of Scripture does tell us what the household of God is. In fact, it's the one that we have on our letterhead. It's the one that I have in, in the front of the pulpit here on that little uh, presidential seal, I guess. There's somebody told me that. It looks like a presidential seal. And, uh, and it's this. In verse number 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, but in case I am delayed, I am writing so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the sport of truth. So what is the household of God? The church, right? The gathered believers. That's what the household of God is. And so that becomes very important because the second thing is that the household of God are those who obey the gospel of God. Now, I want you to notice the language in verse number 17 of chapter 4, for it says, if it begins with us first... What will happen to the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So let me deal first, though, with those who do obey the gospel of God and exactly what is the gospel of God, because that really has to be made clear to you and I. What is the gospel of God? All right, so the term gospel of God is specifically defined in the gospels, the four gospels, if you turn with me to Mark chapter uh, 4 or, or chapter 1, right, the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, then you'll find there what it says about the Gospel. Now it says this, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the Gospel of God. That's what he was preaching. Verse 15 of Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So it's telling us what one is to do once confronted with the gospel of God. And remember, the gospel of God is going to be something quite different than anyone would ever expect. We're not talking about religion here or religious systems, we're talking about what the Bible says about the gospel of God. And so did you notice, though, in our passage of Scripture in verse number 17 of Mark, uh, or excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 4, did you notice that our text was telling us that the gospel is something that is to be obeyed or not obeyed? It's a command for all people who are creations of God, human beings, Right? And so the human obligation, once the gospel goes out and it's being preached, once they hear the gospel, then two imperatives come through the gospel. Two commands come through the gospels. All right, here are the two imperatives found in, right in our passage. And the first one is to repent, right? To turn from something in which you're trusting in to turn from one's unbelief and sinful behaviors and patterns related to idolatry, and that's the first thing to do. It's to turn from the way you're going, 
what you're trusting in for eternal salvation and to turn to some, something else or someone else. In this case, we know it's someone else. So the first thing is to repent. Really, the sin is unbelief. No matter how it manifests itself, it's unbelief. I'm not believing what? The gospel of God. The second thing that goes with that, the second imperative is that of believe, to believe the gospel. Now, if you see again in our passage in Mark on the screen, it says that we are to what? Repent and believe the gospel. And what gospel? It's the gospel that comes from God. The source of this message is God himself. This is not a man-made thing. This is what God has said needs to be done for someone to be made right with him. And so what happens is that is a person is turning from their unbelief, turning from their sinful behaviors and patterns of idolatry, in other words, the God they made up in their own mind, and sometimes they call that God Jesus and the Father, but is not the God of the Bible. See, the gospel of God is when you hear the message of Jesus Christ and his death in behalf of sinners and then his resurrection to give life and you turn from whatever you're trusting in and believing in and you turn and the object of your faith is Christ himself. To believe in something is to accept the truth value of the proposition and then to modify one's thinking and behavior accordingly. So, repentance includes a redirection of one's thinking about God. All your thinking, in other words, about God and your, you know, about yourself and your, uh, about God really has been wrong. Uh, all our thinking really has been about ourselves. It's been about our desires, our own passions, our pleasures, and our pursuits, and our idolatrous beliefs. So you see, we really didn't spend time thinking about God as revealed in Scripture, who he is. What does the God of the Bible, the God of creation, require of me? What does his self-revelation in Scripture tell me I ought to do? So this Greek word, repent, metanoia, means the original meaning was an afterthought. And it came literally to mean to change one's mind. In other words, a second thought shows the first thought was wrong. In other words, my understanding of God, once I heard the gospel, I understood it was wrong. No matter what I thought, how, how, how much I thought I was right, the scripture is saying, no, you're wrong. And so repentance is that change of mind showing us how much we have neglected God. The God who made me and you has given you breath and life and supplied all your needs until now. You have robbed him of what is rightfully his. And then how much you misrepresented God by complaining because your lot in life is unjust and cruel, as you think of it, and you think that God is the cause of your misery. When you are alone, you have brought it actually upon yourself, and you look at God as unjust, or how much you have offended God because you have done the things that he said you ought not to do, and you have left undone the things he commands you to do, like repent and believe the gospel of God. So in other words, we have all, all of us have fallen short of the standard that God has placed before us, which makes us right with him. That a truly repentant heart judges itself by God's standard. His standard of perfect holiness, that sin is any want of conformity to the law or to the character of God against what God says to do. So judging yourself by a fellow person or a fellow, our fellow man, we, we don't look so bad if somebody's worse than us. But if you judge yourself by the perfect holiness 
and the character of God, we all fall short. The only way that a holy God can let an, a sinner into heaven is that sin has to be taken care of. And you can't take care of it yourself. Religious systems can't take care of it. So we, we really come to the place and we see how much we have despised God. And we have been miserable because we have fallen short of the standard of God. We really don't know what the truth is and the way is. So there, there is really no repentance until our judgment of self is formed by a comparison with the divine character. Once I see God, I say, Lord, woe is me, I'm in trouble. I can't save myself. And God the Father says, okay, you're right, you can't. No matter what you do, no goodness in you, no good works can save you. But there's somebody who can save you, and that is Jesus Christ. So that repentance includes also a redirection of one's heart towards Jesus. By the preaching of the word of God, the scriptures reveal the status and the dignity and the significance of Jesus Christ. And it is clear that Jesus is the central person and the focus of God's program for the salvation of men and women. Believing the gospel means to obey the message concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God. He is God's own way of salvation, that God sent Jesus to the cross, that God put all our sins on him and punished them in him. Once a person hears that, the gospel of God, the question would be to you is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? And are you willing to turn from what you have been trusting in and turn from your good works and religious systems and anything you are putting, uh, depending on to somehow think God's going to look at you and say, hey, your, your good scales outweigh your bad, and so therefore come on in. No, that's not how it works. That's not God's standard of salvation. Believing the gospel then means that you stop all your self-justification and reliance upon your good deeds and your own efforts. Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous, the self-righteous. I've come to call sinners. So coming to Christ or coming to, coming, being confronted with the gospel of God, you come to the place where you say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I can't help myself. I can't save myself. So either you're depending on your own righteousness or you're depending on God's righteousness. See, it's God's righteousness that must save us. And that's what Scripture means by obeying the gospel of God. The suffering of Christians as a forerunner of the coming judgment of the world. See, judgment that starts at the household of God goes beyond to include the lost. So in our, in back to our 1 Peter chapter 4 text, because I can't spend more time on that, is that it's the cleansing of the church, but the letter C would be that the, these, the household of God, are saved with much difficulty. Now look what our text says in verse 17. It says this, and if, the middle of the passage, if it is, it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. Now, who are the righteous? The righteous are the household of God who tr obeyed the gospel, right? Now, what, what is the character of the righteous? Here's the character of a righteous person. That the Bible, God has made righteous. That person didn't make themselves righteous. God made them righteous. By what? By believing the gospel, right? By trusting in Jesus Christ, by repenting of their sins. Right, That is what a righteous person is. And so what's the character of a righteous person? Well, they have obeyed the gospel of God. They have repented and believed and received the righteousness of Christ. But they also have identified themselves after they believed in Christian baptism, where they, be, they come into union with Christ. And then they are sober-minded, confessing sound doctrine and obedience. They are also not ashamed of of being called a Christian, 
as the Bible defines that. They are serious about community, church, about family, about living in accord with Scripture. Husbands are serious about loving their wives. Wives are serious about submitting to the authority that God's given their husbands. Parents are serious about instructing their children in the love and the fear of God. Also, the righteous are hard workers on the job, as First Peter defined them. They are reliable workers. They're dependable workers. Why? They're not working for a boss or from someone else. They're working before God's eyes. They're, they're living their life as if God sees every moment of it, and that, that's, that's the way they live and think. And they strive to be good citizens in the community, and they are ready to share the gospel and give someone an answer of the hope that lies within within them. They're ready to do that. In fact, their whole life, every day, they say, Lord, give me somebody to talk to about the Lord today and live my behavior before them. So, not condemnation, but the purging, cleansing, and purifying of the church by the loving hand of God, it is far better and more important to the kingdom work to endure suffering as the Lord purges and strengthens the church than to endure eternal suffering of the unbelievers in the lake of fire. If God so strongly and painfully judges his church that he loves, what will he what will be the fury, his fury on the ungodly? What, what will that be? Well, you know, another thing comes to mind as I looked at this passage of Scripture, and it's this, that part of the difficulty of someone being saved or someone being made righteous is that the salvation of a sinner is a costly thing. Now, look right there in First Peter and turn your Bibles to chapter 1. We already dealt with this in chapter 1, but notice there, that the salvation of sinners is a costly thing. Why? Look at verse number 18 of chapter 1. It says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, or in other words, from your parents. In other words, here in this passage of Scripture, God ransomed us. In other words, he bought us, he purchased us from the slave market of sin, which we were definitely, sin was our master, and it was at great cost that the way of life that was dictated to us by evil desires and selfishness and ignorance of God and his will See, what could our parents hand down to us than what they knew? If they did not know Christ as their Savior and Master and responded to the gospel as the Bible teaches, well, they could only pass down to us their version of how to live your life and what religious system to follow. You know, I was born this, I was born that, I was born that, you know? And so that's what the answer, what are you? I'm, I'm, a, I'm this, I was born a uh, Episcopalian or anything. And so you, I, I was born a Jew, I was born a Christian. You know, whatever, it doesn't mean, because where you were born don't mean you're a believer and you understand the gospel of God. You have to respond to it when you understand it. So a lifestyle that was pointless and senseless because it had no lasting value uh, to it and was completely void of hope was the lifestyle that we all were born into, actually. Christ purchased his children and freed them from this futile way of life by giving us the truth. And the truth now made clear to us what we ought to do. And so here's the passage again that Christ ransomed his children by the highest cost possible. Look at verse number 19. It says this, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. See, this is the great cost of purchasing our souls for eternity, that Christ's blood is of inestimable, greater value than any earthly temporary commodity like silver or gold, which we place so much 
emphasis on. See, Christ purchased us with his own blood, with his own life, with his own death. Not with any temporal human payment, because without the shedding of blood, without Christ's death in the place of sinners, no sin could be washed away. And so Christ ransomed his children by Christ's extraordinary death in verse number 19, but with precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And who did he do that for? Notice what it says in our passage in verse 20, for your sake, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God and who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are where? In God. So he's done that so our faith and our hope would be in the right person not some religious systems of do's and don'ts. See, that's what, where he brings us. So God knew long before creation what would happen when he created mankind, that mankind would fall into sin and chose the only way that sin-laden mankind could be brought back to him. He foreknew his people and he foreknew Christ's perfect sacrifice for us that God's preparation and action were done for our sake, for the sake of his chosen, for the sake of those who are the household of God, for the sake of those who believed in the gospel of God, repented and trusted in Christ alone for salvation. So here's the question I have and I have had when I studied things like this and look at these passages of Scripture. So is salvation an easy thing? Is it easy to be saved? Of course, that's a yes or no answer. Or there could be, I just don't know. Some say that salvation is a simple thing. Just follow certain steps of logic. If you believe this, if you believe that, one's mind goes through this little system of logic and intellectually assents to certain facts, even certain facts of the gospel. Do you believe Jesus? Yes. Do you believe he came? Yes. Do you believe that he died? Yes. Do you believe he rose again? Yes. doesn't mean a person is a believer. Those are just the facts. So then they conclude, this one is a Christian, and they're well and they're safe because they ascended to certain facts. Others... Say anyone, if they choose, can be a Christian. Just do it. It is simple as, it's, it's a simple and it's an easy thing. It's just as simple as signing a card, raising your hand, walking an aisle, ascending to certain simple facts. And so what happens is that some people just say, well, you know what, I, be, I believe those things. But th- there's no change in their life. There's no affection for God. There's no repentance of sin. There's no connecting to the household of God and being faithful to the word of God and to living like Peter described in this epistle. There's none of that. It's just that, yeah, I believe those things. Well, if you believe those things and it has not changed you, if it has not transformed your mind, it has, if it has not made you into the image of Jesus Christ, then there's a big question mark over whether a person really understands and has believed the gospel of Christ. But there are others who say and teach that believing the gospel is not an easy thing. Just like the gospel of Luke says. Notice what it says here on the screen. It says, and someone said to him, Lord, are there just the few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not. Of course, he was talking specifically about the religious leadership of Israel, who set up so many parameters around the truth that people never really got to the truth. 
And they said, you just do these things, you do these things, and you'll be right with God. If you're a Jew, you're right with God because now you're part of the inheritance. And you know, and the Lord is rebuking them and saying, no, few are going to find it. Not many will be saved. Or a passage of scripture like Matthew chapter 7. It says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. Verse 14, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So the broad road is more enticing because it's, it's lined with attractive glitter. It's lined with everything that attempts our passions and desires and makes us feel good. It also has many different viewpoints, which leads to life. But the reality is that the many viewpoints are wrong and actually leads to destruction. At the narrow gate, one can't bring in the baggage of their own homespun philosophy and religion. The narrow gate is narrow. You know what? The only thing you can get through the gate is you. And God brings you through. You can't bring all your baggage with you. And yet, what, what kind of day do we live in? We, this is the kind of day we live in. We have a, live in a day where there's relativism, no absolutes. Believe what you want. Right? There is, we live in a day of pluralism. Everyone's opinion is equal. Nobody tests whether a person's opinion is truth or not. Your truth is your own truth. Believe what you want. Just as long as you're happy and comfortable. Or secularism. You really, secular, secular, secularism is human, is really human ability without God. Narcissism answers the answers are within myself. And all this new age uh, religion that is in our system today is all about what's inside. It's not about what's inside. It's about God who's outside, right? And I'm to believe him. And then pragmatism. We, can, we can't know reality. We must settle on what works. Whatever works, then that's, I, if it works for you, great. But which work, what works for you doesn't really work for me. But what works for me doesn't necessarily work for you. That's pragmatism. That's a nice USA homespun philosophy. Matter of fact, we run a lot of things off of that. We don't ever ask what's truth. It's what works. Because these truth has a way of making things very narrow. Or it could be also deconstructionism especially literary, literary deconstructionism, the, the reader is the interpreter. Even when it comes to the Bible, what it means is what I think it means. You can't come to the Bible like that. You know what? What it means, it doesn't matter what you think it means. What does it mean? I have to find out what it means. See, all these things are in our system. It's all over the place. The biblical message is one must come to Christ alone to be saved. God accepts us only on his own provision, and that provision is Jesus Christ. And because of the corruption and the deadness of the human heart, it is extremely difficult to believe in Jesus Christ without divine intervention. Human beings need divine help or they cannot be saved. And once we are given that divine help by hearing the gospel and the Spirit of God convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, our job then as believers is to wake people up and to get them to think on what road are you on? Are you on the broad road that leads to destruction or are you on the narrow road that leads to life? What road are you on? You're on one of them. Also, for a believer, continuing in the faith is extremely difficult. And why is that? Because we're in enemy territory. All our striving 
is not over once we enter the narrow gate. There's still the narrow way. A plethora of, of things can distract us. Riches can distract us. Problems in our life can distract us. Pleasures lure us off the straight and narrow way. The enemy's strategies are to bewitch our minds and steal our will and divert our attention off the will of God. And he's good at it. So, it is a, profound, a profoundly real thing that with difficulty that the righteous is saved, that the salvation of sinners is a costly thing. It is not a cheap thing. It is not, religion is easy. Salvation in Christ is not easy. That leads me to a second end time reason for suffering, and it's this. Suffering is designed to forewarn the world. In other words, judgment after judgment that comes to the church for a rejecting purpose, a rejection of the source of the gospel, that is, the gospel originates from God himself, so then a rejection of his message is a message, a message that is focused in on the cross and centered in on the person of Jesus Christ. If that message is rejected or substituted for something else, it is an outright rejection of God himself, and that means that God will reject them. Look again at chapter 4, verse number 17. Notice what it, what it says there. It says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will happen to them? In other words, if God judges his own church, who are part of the household of God, whom he loves, what will happen to the unbelievers? And who are the unbelievers? Those who do not obey the gospel of God. That's all. That's what they are. They could be very nice people. They could be good people. They could be generous people. They could be honorable people. But they have rejected the gospel of God. Those other things are great in our society, but they don't save you. So this end time suffering really forewarns the world. For those who do not obey the gospel of God, judgment will fall with terrifying vengeance on those who refuse to believe in Christ and will become more severe as it spreads. And if that is true, and it is, then look at our text in verse number 18. Notice what it says. And if... It is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. What will become of the godless and the sinner? What will become of those? Of the unbeliever or the murderer or the druggard or the drunkard or the liar, the thief, the adulterer, the idolater, the practicing sexually immoral person, whatever orientation they want to choose, and the morally good unbeliever and the religious person who have been faithful to the belief and practice of their religion and all types of unbelievers from all walks of life, what will happen to them? Well, Scripture talks about the house that is built on the rock and it's almost swept away when the storms come. And what will happen to the house built on the sand? It will be washed away. See, some people are building their lives on sand. And when the storms come, and the judgment of God is the storm, when the judgment of God comes, and a person has been trusting in their own belief system, and they've been comfortable in that, and they 
thought they lived a good life and, and a moral life, and even if they didn't, maybe they were, they were still sinners uncleansed by the blood of Christ, and the only thing God could do to them is to send them away from him into a place that is called hell. So if God does judge his own church, his own people, then certainly God will not hesitate to judge the ungodly and the sinner. It may appear that the wicked escape, like we sung about this morning, in this world, but rest assured their judgment is only postponed to a later time. After the flood, the great worldwide flood of Noah, Noah had a vessel And with the other seven righteous people, they were saved. But what about the multitude who had no vessel? They were swept away in the flood. But for 120 years, who preached the gospel? Noah. But nobody believed. Seven people believed. So, you know, again, we see that not many will be saved. So don't think you or anyone else can live in ungodliness and unrighteousness and unbelief and make it into God's eternal kingdom. They, you, a person will not. Because of who God is in his character, he cannot let that happen. So the terrible outcome that awaits those who stumble over Christ because of their rejection of him was already addressed in 1 Peter. If you did not remember where that is, if turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 6 through 8. What we see there is we see in verse number 6, it says this, chapter 2, verse 6, for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In other words, from that passage of Scripture, that we find that the Christ is either an honored cornerstone for, from believers' perspective because of the word of God, or he is an obstacle to stumble over. But for those who believe, the Bible says that they won't be disappointed. In other words, they will have no adverse influence toward them as believers because of what Christ has done. There will be no shame. There will be no disgrace. There will be no embarrassment. There will be no rejection from God. There will be no dishonor. See, God's way and design of salvation brings joy to some who believe and judgment to others who do not believe. So if this cornerstone, Jesus Christ, is rejected, or if someone turns their back on him, there is nothing but ruin left. If there is no cornerstone, the whole building structure crumbles. So the rejected stone, Christ, has become the headstone of the corner. See, this passage expresses in the very strongest way the seriousness of ignoring, forgetting, that is rejecting Christ. In the end, God abandons such people to the error of their own way, to the emptiness of their own systems of belief. He just gives them over to that. And why is that? Notice in verse chapter 2, verse number 8, what is the chief reason for their unbelief and stumbling? Well, look what it says there. Here's the chief reason. Verse number 8, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. So here's the devastating part of it, that the gospel has come, that the word of God has come, 
and they did not obey it. So here's the most devastating sin in the universe right here, the sin of unbelief. That is the sin that will condemn all those who do not trust Christ. So stumbling at the word is the penalty for not believing. So what's the un, what, what is the inevitable consequences of rejecting Christ? You know what the consequences are? Believing a lie. Any lie that, that concludes things like this, there are many ways to God besides Christ. There's many good religious systems out there that are moral and ethical. There's no hell because God is a God of love. He would never send people there. I've been a good person, so I think I'm okay. I'll, in fact, nobody really knows what's right, the right way or the wrong way, so I'm, I'm not alone. Or somebody will say, you know what, I'll take my chances with the man upstairs. So spiritually dead people are characterized by unbelief and rebellion. They're set in their way. They don't want to hear it. They're going to die what they were born in, and they will face the consequences. So Peter is also speaking about the verdict on the enemies of God's house in our passage, that ungodly men and sinners like Nero in Rome and all other persecutors throughout history are calling out the divine verdict on themselves by persecuting Christianity, which is on the rise in the world. All over the world, Christianity is under attack. It hasn't really reached America yet, but it is coming. And in these last days, we're going to see much more of it. Are we ready for that? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? See, this passage undergirds the point that if a justified sinner, it's a quote from John MacArthur, if a justified sinner is saved only with great difficulty, suffering, pain, and loss, what will be the end of the ungodly? See, in other words, no one can get away. There's no escape. There's nowhere to go. This is, this is all in the message of the gospel that if you sitting here today, where do you stand with God? Have you come to a place that you know for sure that you've heard the gospel of God and have repented of your unbelief and trusted Christ alone for your salvation. And then from that point on, followed him throughout your life, bearing fruits of the Spirit of God. Have you done that? Are you sure of that? Don't believe the old lie of Satan where he says to the young people, ah, don't worry about it, you're young, you have plenty of time. Or to the old people, ah, you're old crusty, set in your ways. You don't need any of that. You already know what you believe. See, it's really what lie are you believing or what truth are you shunning? The truth of the gospel is clear here. You, we can't get away from what it says here. There's no wiggle room for anyone. Either you know Christ or you don't. Today is a great day. Today is a great day for someone to come to the place and say, you know what, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I was, I was depending on this, and I know now it's wrong. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to Christ. I'm going to believe the gospel. I'm going to repent of my unbelief, which I didn't think it was, but now I know it is. And I'm going to trust in the only one who could save me. 
the only provision God the Father gave us for salvation is Jesus Christ. And today, today is the day I'm going I'm to ask Christ to save me. Because it does come to the place where I do ask Christ to save me, call upon me, right? God wants us to call upon him, right, to be saved. Believe in our heart that he's raised from the dead, and the Bible says you will be saved. And every, anybody who's a Christian, that's how we got saved, right? God cleared our whole mind out of all the garbage and junk that confused us about how to be made right with God. We see it clearly. We believe in him. God gives us his spirit, and everything's different. Everything's changed. My whole life is, is different because of Christ. And anybody who's a real believer knows that. And someone who's not a believer does not know that. So here's the last thing in closing that the passage says in our book here. Remember, all talking about suffering, there are a few things followers are told to do. In verse number 19, it says, Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So here, here are three things. First of all, remember that Christian suffering is linked with the will of God. Secondly, that Christians are to entrust their souls to a faithful creator. In other, in other words, Christians must trust their lives to God, their creator, who will never fail them. I will never leave you or forsake you. A creator, as creator, he has both the power and compassion to care and protect his people so we can trust him in the present, no matter what's going on, and we can trust him in the future, and yes, we can trust him for our eternity. Why? Because he is a faithful creator. Faithfulness is his character. He cannot other be he cannot be other than who he is. And then, of course, the last thing is that Christians are to continue to do what's right. Living a life of holiness and goodness and good works according to what is pleasing to God. This is after salvation. So that Christians are not to take matters into their own hands. In other words, if suffering comes, we are not to retaliate. We are not to hold revenge no matter how bad it gets. Why? Because that's God's department. We cannot do that. Even though every single movie that comes out, it's about revenge. It's about getting back. But you know what? That's another mindset that we have to fight against because that's not what the Bible teaches. But committing really our situations and, and cause to God the Father who judges righteously, that's exactly what Jesus did, so we follow in his steps. So, in closing, have you obeyed the gospel? If you have, then it's a source of rejoicing. But if you haven't, repent of your sin of unbelief and your sinful behavior and believe in Christ alone, God's only provision for sinners. That is what God says in the word of God. So yes, salvation is difficult. But when we understand the truth of the gospel and what we need and what God gives us to come to Christ, on God's side, it's simple. And it's narrowed down to these very simple principles to repent and to believe and then to follow him. So I pray you know where you're at today and that if you were to die tonight, don't die on Monday, that's my day off. And I get a phone call that I know that you know where you're going. I, I, that gives me great confidence as a pastor to know this person was a believer. That's joy, right? And if they weren't, that's grief because I know the outcome. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I, I do thank you, Lord, for the hard passages of Scripture, for, for those passages that really get a hold of our heart and squeezes it. So I just ask you, Lord, that you would take your word today and you would use it however you see fit in the lives of those who are here today. And I pray that you would bring 
those who don't know you to Christ. And I pray from this day forward, as they repent of their unbelief and their sinful behavior and their idolatry, they would turn to the Jesus Christ who died in their place as a sinner, who turned away the wrath of the Father, and who has completely fulfilled the justice of our condemnation and has granted us, by his work, eternal life. Thank you for that. And Lord, if somebody needs to speak to me today about this truth, please bring them my way or someone in our church who can show them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.